This episode of Spawned is brought to you by Picture Play, a fantastic ebook from the amazing Jill Krause of babyrabies.com. Picture Play will teach you how to take photos you love and want to share, print, and frame with only your smartphone and a few free and cheap apps. Go to Shop Baby Rabies, that's babyrabies, R A B I E S.com, and use the coupon code SPAWNED for $3 off. That's shopbabyrabies.com, code SPAWNED for $3 off. Hello and welcome to Spawned, a common sense and hopefully fun discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase and I'm one of the co-founders of CoolMomPicks.com. You're like, wait, where's Liz Gumbiner? Well, you know what? Liz has a couple of really sick kids. Don't worry, she'll be back next week. And today, I am going to be talking to one of my favorite people on the internet, Catherine Connors, an old friend. So it's kind of like Liz is here because we all met each other on the internet at the same time. So today, we're going to be talking about what it means to be feminine in 2019 with my dear old blogging friend. That sounds bad, but it's not. (laughs) Catherine Connors, who is now the author of the new book, The Feminine Revolution. And as always, we will close out our show with our cool picks of the week. But first, let me talk a little bit about our awesome guest. And ooh, I have some fun dirt on Catherine, so I'm trying to think of what to share. (laughs) No, no, no. Before she was an author and an executive, she was her bad mother. But since then, she has been very busy as the former editor-in-chief of Babbel, co-founder and former CCO of Maverick, which is a network for girls and young women, and the president of Women Rising. But why we're talking with her today, not just because I love her, but because she is the co-author of the new book, The Feminine Revolution. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Kristen. I am so excited to be talking to you. I know. So we started blogging with way back before social media, so BSM. (laughs) (laughs) And before we start talking about this whole awesome feminine revolution and all the stuff that you've been doing... I have to start by sharing a few of my favorite memories of you. Do you any of the top of your head that you can think of that might come up here? I, I can think of a couple and I'm cringing in advance. No, no. Smile cringing. Smile cringing. Smile cringing. Okay, well, we have to talk about the pasties, right, at BlogHer. Mm-hmm. And what BlogHer was that? Was that 2006? Yeah, that was 2006. That was 13 years ago. That's crazy. Your oldest daughter was, what, like nine months old? Barely, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So that's a fun one. And people are like, why pasties? Well, back, back, way back when, before there was this huge surge of bloggers, there was a blogging conference called BlogHer. And many of us who had met online through blogging, let's see how many times I can say blogging (laughs) in this next five minutes, we all got together at this conference. And there were a few companies that were giving away swag. And one of those companies were giving away pasties. And so we decided it would be really cute and funny to put them on outside our shirts. (laughs) We sure did. The added nuance there was it was my first time away from Amelia, who was still breastfeeding. And I was, I assume this is mom friendly, but I was engorged and in some pain. So the pasties had a whole other nuance for me. They really did. I still remember you trying to desperately find a breast pump. I also remember you telling me that Amelia was like climbing and jumping on things. And I was shocked and scared because I was thinking, she's nine months old. I don't even think my oldest was walking 
talking at that time. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I knew I was in for it. <laughs> yes, you were in for it. And now we both have teenagers. I know. It's freaky. It's crazy. All right. So let's talk about this book. Congratulations. I'm so excited. I read through it. It's wonderful. I think our audience, it's going to resonate with them. But I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what the rallying cry was for you to write this book. So was it one event? Was it a series of things that happened? I mean, I think we can talk about the obvious tenor of like the world right now, but I'm wondering if there was something personal for you that came into play. It was kind of a confluence of things, including meeting my co-author. I mean, so I I had been wanting to write a book about the history of women and girls and storytelling for a long time. As you know, it goes way back. You know, I was an academic before I was a blogger, and that was one of my core areas. But at the time that this book began coming into its origin, I was at the Walt Disney Company. I was doing a lot of work on Princess. Oh, yes. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's coming together. Okay. A lot of work on Princess. Yeah. And my kids at the time were hitting that stage of kiddom and pre-adolescence. And I was thinking a lot about feminine cultural stereotypes. You know, as you might recall, in the early days when you met me, you never would have guessed a million years I'd go work for Disney. You know, it's pretty staunch in some of my ideas about <laughs> um, girl stereotypes and princesses. True. That's very true. But I was really compelled to, you know, evolve my thinking and draw mm-hmm. my academic background. And as it happened, Jimmy Pitaro, who was the head of Disney Interactive and is my boss and a really big supporter of the work I was trying to advance at Disney and reframing and repositioning Princess, was also a friend of Amy Stanton's. And he knew that she was very interested in writing a book on femininity. So he suggested that we meet. And we did. And there was a meeting of feminine minds. And, you know, we were coming at it from very different perspectives, but we both really felt like there was an important moment to dig into the stereotypes and to really unpack what femininity means for us personally and politically and socially, you know, and really dive into it. It was a couple of years after that that we decided to write the book together, but it really started there. You know, it's so funny when we have authors on to hear how books came to life. And so many people have said, you know, I had the idea and then it took a little while for it to really come to fruition. I think like if people are out there thinking, oh, well, if I want to write a book, I need to get on it. But a lot of times it takes a lot of time to evolve before it actually comes to life. It really does. I think that they need their moment. I mean, as it happens now, the book that I had been thinking of at the time, which, you know, really involved a deeper dive into Princess, you know, is is now going to be my next book. But I kind of needed to work through this book Mm -hmm. to be able to write that I'm going to do next. So it's it's really true. Ideas need to percolate. You know, books have their moment, right? They're going to be born when they're going to be born much the kids are. Yes. And sometimes they don't come when they're supposed to. And sometimes they are late and sometimes they're early. So why do we need this? Why do we need a feminine revolution? You know, you mentioned stereotypes. And I know that a lot of the word feminist and even feminine, which they're two very different words, Mm -hmm. but both have their own set of stereotypes. So was that really why you're like, these things that people are saying about the word feminine are not true? Was Was that part of it? Or, you know, what were you trying to do? Reframe the conversation? Yeah, exactly that. I mean, look, both feminist and feminine are in their own ways F-words, right? Yeah. They're they're words that carry a lot of baggage and they're social ideas that carry a lot of baggage. With femininity, I mean, there's a lot of conversation about feminism, you know, especially among progressive women, obviously, Mm self-described feminists, of which I am one. Um, Not so many conversations about femininity. And it was one of the things that really struck me, you know, in my work, uh, especially around Princess, you know, at Disney, I, I really had to grapple with it personally and professionally, was that there were just so many biases and prejudices about femininity. 
mm-hmm. that we've internalized culturally and socially because these are millennia old. And I don't think that we can get to a meaningful place of even talking about not just equality, but sort of a meaningful embrace of all sexes and all the spaces on the spectrum of sex and gender, however we understand those, without addressing how we think of the social and cultural experiences of being female or identifying as Mm -hmm. female Mm -hmm. and our expectations around those experiences, which is to say femininity, that is detaching it from ideas of sugar and spice. Yes. Right. And crinolines (laughs) and talking about it as a term that really is how we talk about our experience of being or identifying as female. On the book cover, it talks a lot about feminine traits being keys to a happier life. And we've had KJ Delantoni on here who talks about being Mm -hmm. a happier parent. We've talked to Gretchen Rubin, who has books and books about happiness. Is there a sense, you know, from your research and experience that women are generally unhappy or perhaps more unhappy than they were? Or have we always been unhappy? What's what's your sense on how we're feeling these days? Uh, it, it's a complicated question. You know, I, to address our subtitle on the cover directly, I think it's more we can always be happier, right? Even if you identify or experience your life as a happy one, you can probably be happier. Sure. My own research and a lot of the research that is out there is certainly the research on the experience of moms Yes, is that there are pretty significant degrees of unhappiness, not in the sense of are we deriving pleasure from life, but in the sense of our emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. Just to put my dorky professor had on. <laughs> Wait, did you ever take it off, Catherine? Come on. No, I describe myself <laughs> as a recovering academic. <laughs> um, I actually used to teach a class on philosophy and happiness, and I love teaching it in part because we would do this deep dive into ancient and modern ideas of happiness. And Aristotle's idea of happiness is a, basically a wellness of spirit. Mm. It's the most mm-hmm. important form of happiness, right? right? It's not one that we get from pleasure or feeling like life is easy, but a feeling of fulfillment, a feeling of authenticity, of connection with others, I think we do struggle with that kind of happiness. And I do think that doing the kind of explorations into who we are and how we identify and how we experience our identity really do some work towards advancing more that kind of happiness. Some of our most popular episodes were with the folks that I mentioned. So I think there's certainly something to it, especially when it comes to parenting. And I think, you know, given how things have gone in terms of parenting approaches, like helicopter, Mm. tiger mom and lawnmower parent, I don't even know what lawnmower or parent is. I don't understand that. But, um, you know, everyone, <laughs> some sort of home appliance parent or, home or appliance flying parent. gadget parent, there is a sense that we put a lot of time and energy into being a parent. And like you said, it's not like we're generally unhappy with life, but our well-being and our emotional well-being is affected. Exactly. And I'm glad you made the differentiation because there's definitely a difference there. There really is. I, I would also say that just, I mean, on the question of femininity, and this isn't actually specific to women, but I I think this applies to women and men and to boys and girls. And in some ways, it may actually apply more to men as we dive into that recent Gillette commercial and all the debates around oh, that. Oh, well, yeah. I know with Jasper, for example, my son, he has experienced real unhappiness at feeling as though he's cut off from, quote unquote, feminine things. He's always loved princesses and My Little Pony, but he's very, very self-aware that his sensitivity, his compassion, his deep, deep love for his male friends, mm-hmm. that, that those are culturally frowned upon. So right. it's like in, in his case, on both sides of the happiness spectrum, both the emotional well-being and the pleasure he derives from life, he would be a much happier kid if he could openly play with My Little Ponies. Right, right, right. right. So 
unpacking and debunking these stereotypes does have very measurable impacts on, on both our emotional well-being and our ability to derive pleasure from life. So Liz wanted me to ask you this, and I think it's the perfect time to bring this up. So she's wondering if you think the term feminism is here to stay or whether you feel like it's been co-opted by negative forces and that our kids will start explaining the same concept but using different words. And I know we talked about the difference between the word feminine and feminist, but you know, you can't talk about feminine without talking about feminism. That's such a great Liz question. <laughs> it is, right? How did you know? Well, other than yeah, that I told you, you probably could have known that that was a Liz question. Yeah. I can see both scenarios playing out, um, and that's why it's a great question. I, I do think the next generation of progressive young women, which is a current generation, you know, it, it starts much younger now than I think it ever has, are owning their own version of feminism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, in a lot of the research, you know, that we did around Maverick, and there's some research that crossed over, you know, with work on the book, in, in talking to girls, and girls as young as seven or eight years old, they're really self-aware as feminists, right? And we'll use that word to describe themselves, which was really striking for me, you know, because I certainly at seven or eight years old did not describe myself as a feminist. I don't think I called myself a feminist until I was, you know, maybe late high school, or early college. So th there is a self-awareness around the need for a political stance that we're currently calling feminism. At the same time, I, I can see them wanting to own their own version of it. Right, right. right? Of course. There's so much of that happening with, with everything else. I feel like it's inevitable in a way. It, it really is. I mean, we know there have been multiple waves of feminism now. I mean, what we're in like the fourth or the fifth wave of feminism. I don't yes, know. yes. There have been times in the past when we've insisted, no, we're not feminist. Yes. You know, some people have said yeah. they're humanist, which, you know, I can see us going through that again, an effort to reclaim the language. I think especially because we're way, way more aware of trying to detach sex from the question and, and separating sex and gender, you know, and, and being aware that to be feminist doesn't necessarily require being female, nor I would say, and we make this clear in the book, nor does being feminine require being female. So I, I can really see there potentially being a push, you know, as this generation begins to own its understanding and experience of feminism and femininity to, to begin to try to, you know, adopt their own terms. And this comes into big play because many of us are raising girls. And so we're we're struggling with our own identity in a way and mm -hmm. our own use of the word and what that means for us. I mean, as someone who is in mid-40s and Liz just turned 37 again, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting place for us. You know, my daughter is in high school and I'm watching that play out. And then I'm finding my own place in the world as a 40-something. So it's very complex, especially for those of us who are raising girls right now, to think how we have defined it and how the word has been used and misused and how they might take it and apply it to themselves. So it's exciting and a little scary. <laughs> it's it's all out terrifying, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, okay. I'll be honest. I, I I'll mean, go with you. I'll go terrifying with you. <laughs> there, there was actually, there was a study that came out of Harvard early last year or late the year prior about incidences of depression and anxiety in women, basically in our cohort, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of yes. in that perimenopausal stage, <laughs> parents of tweens and young teens in right. particular. And it found that there were actually higher incidences. I can't remember if it said it was equal to or a bit higher of anxiety and depression as in moms of newborns. And they postulated that this was sort of akin to a kind of postpartum depression Interesting. that we experience. And part of it is because we're going through our own hormonal changes 
again, again. right? <laughs> but the other piece of it is that we're in completely uncharted territory, right? Mm-hmm. Raising tweens and teens, especially tween and teen girls in an age where we're confronting our sex, our sexuality, our female and feminine identities at a time when we're also confronting theirs is existentially terrifying, mm-hmm. right? Yes, Both, you know, indeed. It's a, it's a massive job and it's also really super confronting mm-hmm. and it's something we don't have a lot of resources for. Well, that's right? a, such a great point. The lack of resources for parents who want to be super involved You know, super involved starts to come off as like, I'm a helicopter parent and I've already used Mm. that, but that's not what I mean. You know, like just walk this journey with them, right? My parents were completely detached. So I'm trying to find the middle ground, you know, not hovering, not being detached, but really supporting them and guiding them on this journey while I'm pretty much in a journey myself. Exactly. So that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. It is. And we're also doing it in a completely new age. I mean, you and I and Liz and others met when we had babies, right? Yeah. And and now our children, so the, the children of us, the first generation of mom bloggers are now tweens and teens. We, we don't have the same outlets. We don't have the same places to go. And we're navigating a media landscape at the same time that our daughters are right. with a lot right. of the same issues. And so, yeah, it's a it's a sticky wicket to be sure. All right. So when I saw the book and heard the name, right, I just looked at the outside of it. And I was like, the feminine revolution. I was like, this is like a fist in the air. And I know you well. And I was like, oh, this is going to be deep and heavy. <laughs> but you know what? I have to be honest that I thought it was very gentle and thoughtful in the presentation. Not that you wouldn't be thoughtful, obviously, in a more academic, heavier piece. But I just loved that it was so approachable. And so I'm wondering, you know, it's interesting to me, the juxtaposition, right, of this idea of revolution. But then when you read it, you're just like, oh, these are changes I can make. Like, I mean, revolution and change, Mm -hmm. synonyms. But I was wondering if that was purposeful. Like, how did that evolve? Because I think if people see it, they're like, whoa, revolution. But when you get inside, you're like, these are really biteable, achievable things that you're sharing in this book that are not anything lofty that you have to ruminate over for many hours. These are things that you know you can change in your life very quickly. Yeah, I mean, you know me and you know that I can be very fist in the air. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. But yeah, I mean, it really is a core piece of the argument and one that we were really trying to practice and embody power or assertiveness don't necessarily require adopting a dominance Mm -hmm. strategy, Mm -hmm. right? That that you can speak to revolution in the context of change without being aggressive about it. I am all for raging and fighting the power. You know this. Oh, I totally do. There there are many places where I have and where I will again. But in this case, it felt really important to model an alternative way of influencing and engaging. And also we wanted it to have a really broad appeal. Mm -hmm. We wanted to have the conversation, not just with the types of women and men who would automatically agree with the premise, but to have it be accessible, to have it be a conversation that could embrace a variety of perspectives and do it in a way that is a little bit more of a practice of soft diplomacy Right. Sure. <laughs> and to really demonstrate, you know, that, that you can make a case for both personal and social change without having your fist in the air. I mean, it's all things that it raises the question, too, about where does masculinity fit in here? And the objective of the book isn't to say down with masculinity, up with femininity. It's about opening up space for the conversation about femininity because we haven't had it. Well, and I didn't get that at all. I mean, I think you might 
maybe when you hear the title, but I didn't get that yeah. at all. I mean, I really felt like this was such a great handbook. It's an easy read. It was a fun read, actually. And I'm in the kind of like how to do this book stage of my life. Like I mm-hmm. save fiction for the airplane and like in my daily life, it's like, how do I talk to my teens? So she'll listen and like those kinds of things where I need to be able to get through it pretty quickly because I need to make changes. Yeah. And so yeah, to, be able to be able to apply it. Yes. I want to be able to apply it very quickly. All right. So a couple things you talk about. Actually, there's a lot about sexuality, which of course I love. Listeners mm-hmm. might know that I wrote a book about sex a long time ago called The Mama Natrix's Guide to Sex. So I'm all about the sex stuff. But you talk about flirting. You talk about sexual power. You talk about seduction. Talk to me about why including those things was so important. Because there were a lot of chapters, right? They're not super long chapters. But I, I was like, wow, there's at least four here. You talk about romance as well. So like mm-hmm. there was a lot about sexuality, which I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, why was that so important? important to you and your co-author? Um, because we have such a hard time talking about it and because there is so much cultural baggage attached to it. In a lot of conversations about female sexuality, what isn't talked about is the gender-coded stereotypes around it, you mm-hmm. know, and, and some of the, the hypocrisies around it, right? You know, men are charismatic. Women are vapid, superficial flirts, right? Male seduction is powerful. Female seduction is dangerous. So in the first case, we couldn't have a conversation about femininity because there are so many feminine stereotypes that are rooted in fears and anxieties about female sexuality. There's so many stereotypes that are rooted, you know, in the perceived superficiality of women around sex and love and relationships. Yes. So we needed to be thorough in, in how we were investigating femininity. But in the bigger picture, it's about these are some of the most important areas for conversation conversation for us. And they're Mm -hmm. so fraught, right? Yes. It's really, really difficult to talk about owning your sexual energy in the climate that we're in. But I would argue that we can't really address the challenges of the climate we're in and maintain our sort of sexual integrity if we're not really digging into what our sexual experiences are, what our sexual energy is, what our romantic energy is, what gives us pleasure, what makes us feel powerful, you know, and fulfilled in relationships if we're not really digging into the stereotypes around those. Well, and I love that, you know, not just because I wrote the sex book, but also because I feel like for so long it's been taboo and a lot of the conversations have either been if you're having issues, right? So you're like not into it or you're having trouble in your marriage or whatever it is, that's when the conversation comes up. It's always really for some sort of function. So I love that it was just part of a conversation about identity. Like this is who we are and this is how we embrace it. And it's not anything different than like a chapter on being agreeable, right? It's just like this is part of our identity and who we are. And by the way, when we talk about men, it always is part of the conversation. Exactly. But, you know, for women, it's always seemingly like low on the list or something we dance around. And so, you know, I, I love that you grabbed it by the vulva. <laughs> Balls. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Uh, yes. Okay. So here's the deal. A couple things I noticed were about like being agreeable or, you know, apologizing. And and many of those things are all about balance, right? Because like mm. you can be too agreeable, you can apologize too much, you know, or, or not enough. And I feel like those are very typically feminine and can be used in a negative way to describe femininity. So how do women balance those things? How do we balance this idea of saying yes or apologizing when we know that 
oftentimes we are described as being too agreeable or apologizing too much? That's really one of the core questions. It is a balance, you know, and it's about what finding what works for you, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. in the effort of finding what works for you, thinking about what the broader social implications are, right? We're not going to change the culture overnight, right? But if we can shift the conversation about crying in public or being emotional or being sensitive, that's going to make more space for all of us to really explore those experiences. You know, but at the core of it, again, bearing in mind that everything is in balance, right? We are certainly not suggesting, you know, that we all start going to work sobbing openly and tearing up our clothes, right? (laughs) But it's about swinging the pendulum a bit in the other way, that when we think about crying or expressions of emotion or being sensitive or exercising your intuition, you know, or being chatty, using exclamation points, being social, that we're being really thoughtful about our responses and reactions. So crying openly, for example, and being a crier. My co-author, Amy, is a self-described open crier. Mm-hmm. I am not. I just... Mm-hmm. I'm not. But but writing that chapter gave me an opportunity to question it in the way that I would hope readers will. Mm -hmm. Am I not a crier because I'm just not a crier? I don't express. I'm very emotional in other ways. Right. 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 Or am I not a crier because I've internalized the cultural idea that it's weak? Mm -hmm. Right. Would I feel better if I cried more? What would happen if I gave myself more permission to cry? What would that look like? So it was my invitation to myself to think about that more carefully about why do I not do that, right? What are my judgments about women who do do that, you know, about my kids? So it's it's about being thoughtful about these and being thoughtful in a way that is facing opening up space for more of that, right? Crying is really good for us physically, right? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Expressing our emotion, you know, Brene Brown has written extensively on the power of leaning into our vulnerability. Like mm-hmm. there's real, like there's science behind this. There's a lot of research, but we still got so much cultural baggage around these things that we go too quickly to the negative. And again, these have been seen in negative or weak or dangerous lights precisely because they are coded feminine. If women and girls do it, therefore it's a problem. So Mm -hmm. it's about shifting not just the broader conversation, but our own understanding of these things and our own relationship to these things so that we can just be more thoughtful and purposely in how we embrace them. So I'm wondering how this grows. This idea of redefining femininity, is it something that we as women do ourselves and it grows and grows? Is this something where we need allies? Like I think about all the men that need to read this book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, because so much of how femininity and feminism has been defined has been from the viewpoint of folks of different gender, right, that are looking at us and describing us and saying, this is weak, this is strong. I'm wondering how we further this. Is this something that we need these allies? Do you feel like this can be an internal movement that can make this change? I'm curious to know what you think is next for this. Oh, no, we need the allies. I mean, this is as much a book for men and boys as it is for girls and women, for anybody who's interested, you know, in considering the power of the values and qualities and characteristics behind these stereotypes. You know, I've said in some conversations about this that, you know, in some respects, my greatest feminine role models have been men. It's Mm -hmm. my son, Jasper, my Mm -hmm. nephew, Tanner, my dad, men who do embrace the feminine qualities of compassion and sensitivity and vulnerability and kindness and being romantics and, and that sort of thing. It's absolutely crucial 
that this happen in conversation with men and boys, not just because they need to be part of the solution of modeling these ways of being, but also because, especially in the case of boys, they need permission. They almost need more permission than girls, right? With girls, we give them all sorts of encouragement to adopt masculine postures. There's obviously very, very important conversations to be had with girls, but, you know, boys really suffer. They do. You know, there has been a lot of much needed and much warranted attention on girls of late, which is fabulous. But I do think that it's a different kind of attention that our boys need, right? It's not what they might have gotten before. There needs to be a light shed on it, 100%. Exactly. Um, okay, so here's where folks can find you and the book. If you go to femininerevolutionbook.com, of course, it's available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble, at your local bookstore. And if it's not, be sure to ask them. And if folks want to find you on social media and find out what you're up to or ask you any questions, oh, what's the best place and where are you? Twitter and Instagram are at Her Bad Mother. Facebook is actually Ms. Catherine Connors. Oh, fabulous. And you're going to stick around for our cool picks of the week, right? I am. Okay, so we will be right back after this. I am so excited to talk about our sponsor of Spawn today, not just because Jill Krause of Baby Rabies is one of our best friends on the internet, but also I think in real life too. However, she just finished a fantastic ebook called Picture Play, and it will help you take amazing photos of your children, your family, even yourself if you want to take better selfies. So if you follow Jill on any of her social media accounts, so she writes babyrabies.com, but if you go to babyrabies on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, you will see her amazing photos and you're going to think, oh my gosh, she must use a really expensive camera and she's got lots of awesome equipment. No. She doesn't. She uses her smartphone and a few free and cheap apps, and she takes fantastic photos. And now you can too. In her new ebook, she talks about techniques that can be applied to any kind of camera, and all of the apps she shares are available for both iPhone and Android. And if you're like, wait, an ebook, how does that work? It's so easy. It's an instant download, so you can get it right away once you purchase, and then you can start improving your own photos. And what we love about Jill is that she really focuses on taking beautiful photos of your real life. So not ones that are just staged for Instagram, although your photos are going to be so good after reading her ebook that you're going to want to share them on Instagram. And you don't have to feel like you need to rely on filters to make your photos good. Picture Play teaches you how to shoot and edit photos that will look timeless and beautiful even before you apply filters. And you have to see some of the before and after she's been sharing on her Instagram. Go to Baby Rabies and check it out. People who have bought her ebook have been sharing some of their photos before and after they've used her techniques, and they're fantastic. So we have a special offer for Spawned listeners. If you go to Shop Baby Rabies, that's Shop B A B Y R A B I E. and you use the code SPAWNED, you're going to get $3 off your purchase. So that's shopbabyrabies.com. Use the code SPAWNED and you're going to get $3 off. And then make sure when you take those amazing photos, thanks to that ebook picture play, you let us know, you tag us so that we can see how awesome they are too. All right, Catherine, it is now time for... 
and you are our guest. You get to go first. So lay it on me. What do you got? Ah, it's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> I, knew, I knew this was coming and I was like, oh, what are the things I'm just, I'm, I'm so passionate about. And it was really, really hard to narrow it down. Okay. I, I might have to do some social posts about my other ones. Um, <laughs> that we're, We welcome that. We welcome that. But anyway, go for it. You know what it is based on the conversation we were just having about men and boys and masculinity and femininity? It's a social account. Ooh. Um, his name is Mosho the Cat Rapper. What? M-O-S-H-O-W, the Cat Rapper. Okay. He is a okay. amazing <laughs> man of color who has a whack of cats, and he does songs with them, and he describes himself as like a cat gentleman. He, he for me, anytime anyone asks me <laughs> about like what gives you life on social these days, it's Mosho the Cat Rapper. <laughs> Okay. First of all, what is whack a cat? Is that a thing? Oh, just a ton. You know, he's okay, just got a ton. Okay. Of, I was going to so say, so cool. he's got a shit ton of cats. <laughs> he's got like six or something. Some of them are hairless. He makes he knits sweaters for them. Oh my gosh, this he, is he amazing. Is, he is a living example of a man modeling sort of feminine postures in a way that in no way detracts okay. from his masculinity. Well, obviously going to be following right away. Mosho the cat rapper. Mosho the cat rapper. It, like, honestly, he's funny. He, he's open about his anxieties. He's, he's just super earnest in an age where too few people are earnest. Okay. And very, very passionate about this, what most people would describe as a really non-masculine, <laughs> girly foray. I'm so excited. He owns okay. it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I just, I just, I, he brings so much light into the world. I so. don't want to admit this. Well, I'm going to, but I don't really like cats. But I don't think you need to like cats. I know. I feel like I can still enjoy. No, you don't. He's okay. just really funny. Jasper okay. happens to like cats. And I've used him as an example with Jasper a number of times because I'm like, <laughs> look at how he is. He loves his cats so much and he's open about it and he right. knits for them. Right. And he's just like really as a role model of how fluid and flexible masculinity can be in a way that accommodates femininity. Like he's just the single best example. Okay. Well, that's super perfect. All right. Well, mine is actually, I guess you would consider a feminine pick. I am going to share my love for Thrive Cosmetics. Have you ever tried any of their stuff, Catherine? No. Okay. Tell me about this. Yeah. So Thrive, it's Cause, C-A-U-S-E, Medics. It's a little play on words there. Oh, um, yes. I think I've seen them. You probably about, have yes. seen them. So I tried their mascara because, okay, I'm a big fan of Kevin Oquan's mascara. It's a tube mascara, which means it doesn't smudge, but it's not waterproof. So that's kind of the hard combination is to find something that's smudge proof, mm. but is not waterproof. Yeah. So Kevin Oquan, I swear by, it's a tube mascara, which means it kind of covers your lashes in little tubes and you just kind of wash it off with warm water. It's amazing. Well, I needed a backup and I tried the Thrive Cosmetics and it's awesome. I love it. It's not a tube mascara, but it stays put. It doesn't fall on my face. So I'm giving it a big two thumbs up and I'm pretty picky about mascara. And once I find one, I never, ever abandon it. I love that. <laughs> so. I, I'm definitely looking that up. I'm the same way. The, the whole thing about the balance between smudge proof and yes. not waterproof. Yes. I know you wear glasses, but whenever you wear contacts, that's the thing. Like you don't want a waterproof. I mean, I get it. it like, so you can cry. See, Catherine, you can let loose in your new quest to cry more and not have to worry about your mascara running. How perfect is that? This was made for you. So anyway, you can find more information. We will link everything up. We'll link up Mosho the Cat Rapper. We're going to link up my Thrive Cosmetics Mascara on our Cool Mom Picks podcast page. And of course, we'll link up Catherine's new book, The Feminine Revolution, and anything else that we might have spoken about on this podcast. So you can head over there for more info. 
All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Spawn. Huge thanks to our guest, Catherine Connors, the author of The Feminine Revolution. And we miss Liz. Liz, come back to us. We hope Sage and Thalia are feeling better. But we got to give a shout out. Thanks to our engineer, John Bowen, who always makes us sound like we're standing together in one tiny closet instead of two separate closets two and a half hours away from each other. We do love hearing from you listeners. Please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes and make sure to subscribe to our podcast. In fact, you can actually do that right now while you're listening and be sure to download our episodes. You know, here's the thing. When you do all of those things, when you leave us a review, when you subscribe, when you download, it actually helps other people find Spawned. And you know what? That's just pretty awesome. We love new listeners. We love seasoned listeners too. So we love all listeners. Thanks so much for listening to Spawned. This is Kristen. Liz will be back next week. We hope you have a great day. Bye. Bye.